Welcome to Doing CX Right, a podcast where we discuss how to differentiate brands by doing customer experience right. I'm your host, Stacey Sherman, an author, award-winning keynote speaker, and mentor passionate to help you humanize business and improve experiences to achieve real results. Today, I'm focusing on a very important topic, and that is communication, or lack of, I should say. It's the top reason why people stop buying from brands, write unpleasant reviews, and give bad survey ratings. I know firsthand, having read thousands of customer surveys and led so many feedback sessions with prospects and clients. Well, besides hearing my views, I'm bringing you a wonderful guest, Leslie O. Flyhaven, who is an expert communicator and oh, is she needed when it comes to customer service. The way agents speak and write to customers can make or break a brand's reputation. By the end of the show, you'll learn what great communication looks like and what not to say that probably never crossed your mind yet has significant impacts on customer experiences. You'll also hear advice about effective leadership and ways Gen Z and Gen X can collaborate better despite very different communication styles. I want you to remember that your words matter and how you speak and write matters a lot. And so I'm spending this time to inform you the right ways to communicate for better results. Before we get started, please share this episode with others. Leave me a review as your feedback means a lot. And subscribe to my newsletter at doingcxright.com and you'll get updates and lots of free CX resources. Now, let's get on with the show. Hello, Leslie Oflahaven. Welcome to the Doing CX Right Show. Hey, Stacey. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited. Oh, I have been meaning to get you on my show for a very long time. So that goes to prove patience is really a virtue. Indeed it is. And here we are in the classic setting where we know we have about 30 minutes to talk and we know we could talk for a lot longer. Oh, you are so right. Speaking of right, we're going to talk a lot about writing and the importance (laughs) of doing CX right to that. But before we get in there, how... Who are you? Tell my audience, what do you do professionally? I am the owner of a company called eWrite. It's E hyphen W-R-I-T-E. So you know I formed it back in the 90s when we used to use the hyphen after the E. Our co- my company's mission is to help people learn to write well at work. That's our full mission, to help people learn to write well at work. And for about 20 years or so, I've really been uh, helping and f- fascinated with the work lives of people who write to customers all day. Because Mm -hmm. the last 20 years, the story of the last 20 years in customer experience is the addition of one written channel after another. So I want to help frontline customer service agents and the people who manage them write better email, chat, social media, text and chatbot content and ratings and reviews because we just keep adding channels. Why your passion around writing and and writing so well? Well, um, I have always been, I've always loved to write and I've always been a good writer, but my true calling 
the thing that means the most to me is helping other people learn to write well. I was a high school English teacher for about nine years. I've taught college writing courses. I did that for about three or four years. And I know professionally, my training is in how to help people build writing skills. That's what I do. And so I feel a great deal of empathy and connection for people as they strive to gain the writing skills they need to do their jobs well. Because any job involves writing and any job uh, that you hold for a while involves new writing skills. And employers never prepare you for the new things you have to write. They just add the new things you have to write to your list of tasks. I can help people suffer less. Writing is really hard. And if you get it into your head that you're not good at it, it can be very self-limiting. And I can help there. Mm. What's one fact that people may or may not know about you? A fun fact, eh? A fun fact. Well, uh, my husband and I have the same birthday. (laughs) Oh, that is a fun fact. And we are both Sagittarius, I might add that. That's right. That's right. So someday the three of us will celebrate our birthdays in the first week of December. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Oh, I love that. I get to join the 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 crew there. Yeah. What is another fun fact? Give me give me another one. Well, what's another fun fact about me? Uh, at a wedding, I once danced with the man who invented the highway rumble strip. Well, that I did not predict. <laughs> <laughs> and what did that mean to you? It meant that I was dancing with my friend Karen's Uncle Irv. (laughs) I don't know. It's my fun fact. (laughs) It's a fun fact. All right. Well, let's get into the meat of the show here, which is all about, first of all, writing. And and I want to highlight being impeccable with our words. There's a book that... Everyone who knows me hears me talk about that is the four agreements. And one of the four agreements is being impeccable for our word with our words. And so we discussed earlier, you had not read that. However, you do walk that talk. And I think that when you do read it, oh boy, you're going to have to come back on my show and talk about it because <laughs> you live that every day. I love your tweet about bad customer service writing is like bad breath. (laughs) That cracks me up. And you say it's very common, but possible to fix. So explain what you mean by this phrase and why business leaders should care. Well, I'm going to go back to being impeccable with your words, and then I'm going to get to bad breath. I'll do it all here. (laughs) Okay, good. um, I find the, the... Uh, instruction to be impeccable with your words, terrifying. I find that absolutely terrifying. There is nothing better than impeccable. You can't be better than impeccable. And as I mentioned, my whole career is about helping people who are either trying or gaining new writing skills or struggling to meet the writing needs of their jobs right now. And if I freighted them with impeccable, they would collapse. I would collapse. I I find that actually quite terrifying. I could say, strive to be honest with your words. Choose your words carefully. 
mean what you say and write, all of that I feel quite comfortable with. But the idea of being impeccable is really scary to me. And if we carry over this um, exhortation, be impeccable with your words, over to the kind of writing people do in customer service roles to create a consistent customer experience, oh my goodness, they would collapse if they had to be impeccable. We're just trying to be prompt enough to tell the truth, to uh, read carefully so we understand what the customer is saying before we write our response. It's impeccable is so perfect. We're just trying to be uh, worthwhile, practical, useful, use a comma correctly every now and then. So um, that's why I said uh, custom, bad customer service writing is like bad breath because you know everybody gets it. We can fix it. And there's a known reason for it. There's a known reason that we sometimes, when writing to customers, don't do the job well enough. There's a known reason. Either we're answering too many customer inquiries at, at a time and we, we're not doing a good job because our attention is fractured, or we aren't uh, confident to be honest with the customer and we're being evasive, or the lawyers in our company told us not to say anything honest. So our writing is coming across evasive, or we don't have good writing skills yet, and and we just can't cope with the challenge of writing well. So mm-hmm. um, I I think that uh, writing well is a kind of communication health. Just I, I'm doing my best to connect this to bad breath now. Just like hygiene is a kind of health, and that we can write better if we if we. Uh, believe that communicating honestly is worth the effort. Yes. And it really is in our control. So and you've opened my eyes to the word impeccable, for sure. I I have this urge to write the author <laughs> because <Do it. laughs> he's, he's so good. However, you're right. There is no such thing as perfect. So Maybe there is a better word than that. Certainly being intentional is important. And there are definitely uh, right ways of conveying thoughts. There's better time and place of doing it too. And channels as you talk about. But anyway, thank you for opening my eyes to impeccable uh, being one of his four agreements. And the gist of it is good, but you're right. Perfect doesn't exist. (laughs) I agree. Talk to me about, you've written five things business leaders and service agents should stop writing to customers. Talk about that. I'd be glad to. I'm not going to do all five. I'm going to pick a couple that I think are so common. The first one is, quote, we regret any inconvenience this may have caused. This is the world's most passive-aggressive Uh, non-pology. It's not really an apology. It's uh, words that sound kind of sort of like, I'm sorry, or we're sorry, but it's not sincere. So we regret any inconvenience implies that uh, the thing that you are complaining about, well, that's any inconvenience instead of, I specifically know why you're upset or why you're angry. And this may have caused is really passive aggressive when the customer or even a colleague is telling you, no, you 
you really caused me a problem. There's no may have involved. So one way we can really lift our customer communications is to have the courage to apologize sincerely and and specifically. And we would replace, we regret any inconvenience this may have caused by saying, writing something like, I'm really sorry that our delay in shipping meant you could not give this gift to your sister-in-law as you'd intended. You know, Mm -hmm. that's a sincere apology because it's specific. The other uh, thing we should stop writing to customers right now is kind of a broad category of things. And I, I, I understand why companies do this, but it's really silly. So when a customer complains to an airline, for example, this flight was delayed for three hours because there was no flight attendant. The airline responds, we, we prize our on-time record very highly and 93% of our flights depart on time. We, we, that's defensive. You know, don't lead with what you usually do when you didn't do it for that customer. This happens all the time. And I understand why companies want to say this, but, but that's, it didn't happen for this customer. And when you insist that you do it all the time, you're denying the customer's reality and you have no way to solve their problem or to build rapport after that. Give me one more. One more. How about this? We will share your feedback with the appropriate department. That makes me giggle, you know, because if there's an appropriate department, then probably there's an inappropriate department. And I I want to be the head of that department. So, you know, if sometimes all you can say to a customer is I hear we hear you or I hear you and I will tell the people in my company what you said, the ones who can do something about it. That's all you can offer. You can't make the situation better. All you can say is, I'm going to tell the people in my company who need to know about this, what you've said. In that case, don't refer to them as the appropriate department. Call the department out by name. Companies are sometimes reluctant to do this because they're afraid the customer is going to write back and say, hey, so what did catering say? You know, I told you I thought that the hamburgers were really salty. So what did catering say? We shouldn't worry that there might be the rogue customer who writes back the second time. We should tell the customer specifically who, with whom we're going to share their feedback. Hmm. Do you find that companies typically have a communication manager in place to ensure the consistency and the brand message is reinforced. What, what's your view on company structures and what that looks like? Well, the farmer and the rancher can be friends. As the song says, marketing and customer care can collaborate so that there are professional communicators who kind of move between the two organizations to ensure that, of course, the marketing team and the communications team is communicating in an on-brand way. But they often 
leave out the customer care teams, even the social customer care teams. They're, they're kind of a second-class citizen when it comes to professional communicators. They're often not staffed with professional communicators. And all the guidance that the marketing and communication team creates about how we sound, how we write that brand voice guide, the other collateral that they create. They, often when I work with customer care organizations, they don't even know the corporation has created that guidance because there's a, you know, there's an in the trenches feeling for the customer care team. And there's a kind of a, there's a status gap. The people who are working in marketing and communications, you know, aren't paid by the hour. Their work isn't measured by individual number of emails or chats or tweets they've handled. There's a kind of a, a status gap. But in the best companies, they're not siloed, they're blended, and they're always working together because professional communicators should be helping customer care communicate. But customer care is professional customer service. And they have skills and tools that the communicators and the marketing team don't have. So they really have to work together. I agree. I think silos really hurt a company and in the end, the customer. What about technology? It is happening at such fast speed. So you got chatbots and AI. What's the impact now you're really teaching and, and, and reinforcing good writing and good communication. So how does that come into play with technology? Well, if you take chatbots and AI, there's, you know, speaking honestly now, there's some very good customer care deployments of chatbots and AI, and there's tons of awful ones tons of awful ones. From a customer experience standpoint, a lot of chatbots are like mosquitoes and the customer has to agree to let the chatbot bite your forearm six times before you get help. The, the chatbot really isn't helping, but, but the company has, uh, in an attempt to save money, it is withholding access to the live agent until the chatbot has had a chance to irritate the customer a little bit. Usually those chatbots are drawing on uh, stale content, stale written content themselves. They're drawing on a set of FAQs or, or pieces of knowledge articles. And so, so we do have a writing problem, even with the chatbots, they're drawing on poor quality or difficult to read content. And then that problem transfers because by the time the customer gets out of the unsatisfying chatbot uh, interaction, they are going to interact with the live human, only now they're coming in angry. So now we have a, an, an a mood or an attitude that we have to handle in addition to answering the question or solving the problem. When the AI is working really well, when the content quality that feeds it is high, when uh, companies have invested in, in maintaining and in teaching the chatbot or the AI, the experience can be really good. I'm here for it. I love this kind of technology. Technology that can write and learn to use language, wonderful. But bad chatbots mm -hmm. are terrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can be a source of customer satisfaction or they'll leave and not even let you know. Right, 
Right. Or, or, or the third option is they come in really angry because they were, they asked a question. They were presented with three FAQs that are kind of sort of relevant on one word in a keyword search. And then they're asked to tell you whether it helped, this answer helped or not. That's a horrible customer experience. Yeah. Speaking of customer service agents, so we know that reading from a script, customers know that. It's not authentic. However, there's training and they need to have some guidelines. What's your advice to customer service managers who are trying to keep their agents uh, top performers and deliver customer excellence? How do you balance, don't read from a script, but you also have to say it right? Yes. So I'll take that question in in terms of written customer service. Um, We want agents to have templates or pre-written content or scripts, whatever you want to call them. We want them to have those templates. We do not want agents keyboarding something like uh, discount pricing. You know, we want them to be able to copy and paste volume discount pricing without keyboarding. But it's never an either or. We want them to have templates or scripts that they can copy and paste, and we expect them to be able to free text in addition to copying and pasting. It's never either or. It's always both. And if if it so happens that a customer asks a question via email, chat, or social, whatever, that we have a pre-written answer, it's really good. Maybe we don't need to free text a lot, but we do need to free text some. We need to usually paraphrase the customer's question then to indicate that we've read it. And we often have to take a full script or template and break it into smaller pieces and recombine it a little bit as we create the answer. But it's never either or. And if a customer, if an agent really needs to quote a script, they really need to read the script or they really need to copy and paste it verbatim into a communication, we should uh, permit them, encourage them to indicate they've done that. So right now I'm working, one of my clients is a health insurance company in California, and some of the content in the knowledge base needs to be read verbatim. The stakes are very high. It needs to be exact. It should be fine for the agent to say, um, I'm going to read you what our policy is about how much we pay if you use a doula when you deliver your baby. You know, I'm going to read you that now. I want to give it to you exactly. It's okay to say that. Or if you're using an email template, it's okay to present it as here, I'm giving you the full text of our volume discounts for all the products you've listed. You can indicate that you've copied and pasted some small portions of it. Mm, That makes sense. Gen Z, Gen X, we are so different and we have to work together. Uh, I have young adults and I know firsthand they don't really look at emails. They're very into texting and short communication. So what's your perspective on writing and communication among our different generations? But I'm so glad you asked that question. I thought about it when you when you provided it before we met today. When we talk about Gen X and 
you know, another generation uh, communicating well. I just want to remind everyone, we've done this before in the workplace. We've done it all the time in the workplace. The the task of of understanding and accepting another generation's communication style is not new. So we want to take the lessons we've learned by, you know, helping the greatest generation work side by side with boomers. You know, we've done this before in the workplace. So I I have a few thoughts here. First of all, we want to assume good intent. We don't want to indict each other for the differences in the way we communicate. We don't want to accuse each other of being shallow or whatever, or hasty or unprofessional. Let's assume good intent. That's the first thing. And then I think employers are really responsible for helping employees of all communication styles understand that the way you communicate in your private life and the way you communicate at work are different. And if you never use email in your private life at all, you don't even have any concept of why someone would want to use email, but you have to use it at work, here's how to do that. If you don't like the phone and you never pick up the phone, even when your grandma's in the hospital, in your personal life, well, your personal life's a little different than your work life. And you may need a a wider repertoire of communication channels and styles because you're at work. I want to normalize these differences and convey that we can cope with them. We can cope with them. It's probably a training issue too, because if a company expects to continue important conversations via email, but a large portion of the workforce doesn't doesn't prefer email then now it's a training issue and even there it's not some kind of you know um, unmanageable training issue it's just a training issue i also think that we have to give and take Mm -hmm. as leaders right we need to know our people our teams and speak to them the way they want to be spoken to So it's definitely give and take on both parts. And I do also realize, because I've had a lot of interns on my teams over time, and they do adapt and we adapt. So it's that intention. Right. We do adapt and we should adapt. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So leadership on that topic, what's the best leadership advice you've either received or given? Um, I would like to give some leadership advice, and I've been the extraordinary topics that leaders had to communicate about over the pandemic is, you know, it's it's a, a living, breathing life case study of what kind of communication uh, demands you might have to meet in your job and how you can succeed in them. So I'm just thinking of all of the topics leaders had to communicate about over the pandemic. We, you know, really, really troublesome ones. We've had a death in the family. We've had a death in our leadership team. They had to communicate about that. Or everyone has to go to work and work from home. Or everyone has to come back. That's a very difficult thing to communicate about. Or I need to communicate with you about whether you've been vaccinated and you hold political beliefs or 
uh, cultural, religious beliefs that are really different. The leaders had to communicate about that. And so I have come to see over the pandemic that a, a leader needs to be a person who can say difficult things or write difficult things with candor, with courage, and uh, with kindness. Mm. And if you can combine all that, that is real leader, a real uh, leader's communication style. So f- let's say you have a staff of 100 people and starting after Labor Day, they need to be in the office four days a week and they're furious. They don't want to do it. You're the leader. You need to be able to talk to them candidly about why they need to do it with courage. Courage is a communication style that's built on the assumption of a positive future. So if you have courage, you believe that if you uh, speak and write candidly about the topic, things will be better. And kindly, kindness requires empathy. So that's my advice. Be the person who can say difficult things with candor and courage and kindness. Like we all have that friend who knows what to say when a loved one in your family dies. And they would never say, I didn't speak to you because I didn't know what to say. They just take the courage and they say the thing. And that's what leaders need to be able to do because the blending of of workplace communication needs and personal communication needs so complete, it's all tangled up. And leaders need to be able to uh, communicate that way. Mm, And communicate, as you said, it's saying it and writing it. Uh, whichever you're comfortable with. All right, my last two questions as we're coming to the end. If I had a ton of CEOs and leaders in my room right now, entrepreneurs, what's the one takeaway you want them to remember? I would say invest in your people. Invest in the people who work for you. And in many, many cases, I would say that means training. I don't want everyone to think of, you know, one dry, familiar model of training where you, you know, everyone's in a desk facing forward. That's only one model. But investing in learning opportunities and not being a dilettante about it, doing it all the time and making it part of what your employees know you will offer them as an employer. That's what I would say. Of course, you know, I want to help those people learn to write better, but all kinds of learning. Learning is the best way to retain excellent employees. Agree. And I'm never done learning. I don't think any of us are. So a very good point. And finally, if you could go back in time to your younger 20-year-old self, based on what you know now that you didn't know then, what would you tell younger Leslie? Oh, I had so much fun thinking about this. Um, When I was 20, let's see, when I was 20, I was a junior in college and I was a creative writing major. And I had written, you know, maybe 15 or 20 of the world's worst short stories at that time, just terrible short stories, but I had written a lot of them. And I had a sense that my short stories weren't great, even though I was really committed to writing them. And I used to drag myself around, scolding myself. Are you going to be a real writer? Are you a real writer? When will you be a real writer? And this refrain, real writer, real writer. This was always going through my head when I was 20. And thankfully, when I was 21, I decided to be a writing teacher. 
But that refrain of being a real, whatever it is, fill in the blank, um, you are a real writer if you write. And even if what you write is emails to customers, if that's your job, you are a real writer. I had a, a an undergrad's narrow view that unless you were creating fiction, you weren't real. I didn't have the imagination or the experience to consider all the kinds of writing a person might do as real. And so that's something I would go back and tell my 20-year-old self, which is, um, it's not, the standard isn't, are you creating art? (laughs) That's a pretty high standard. (laughs) It's, are you making language? That's what real writers do. And I I would like to say that to other 20-year-olds. Stop worrying that you're not you know, a real singer, unless you have a recording contract, you know, you are a real singer. Are you singing? You're a real singer then. So that's what I would tell my 20 year old self. Well, we could spend a whole nother hour on imposter syndrome, but we've run (laughs) out of time. (laughs) So (laughs) thank you. I, I am so grateful to share the gift of you. And I will put in the show notes, the links to your social media. And is there any particular favorite place for people to find you? I'd love it if you find me on LinkedIn Learning. I'm the author of six writing courses on LinkedIn Learning. The newest is called Writing in Plain Language. And those Mm -hmm. trainings are excellent. And if you don't have a license, a LinkedIn Learning license at your company, you can still take the training for free. If you log into your public library account, almost all the public libraries in the U.S. offer free access to all the LinkedIn Learning training through the public library account. I did not know that. You just taught Mm -hmm. me something really big. So thank you for that. Oh, this is fabulous. Well, thank you for being on my show and for being such an awesome woman leader. And I can't wait to share this with everyone. Thank you so much for inviting me, Stacey. I loved our conversation. Thank you so much for joining today. I hope you will apply the lesson shared and also requesting if you would leave a review on Apple, it would mean a lot. Head over to doingcxright.com to learn more ways to connect with me and improve your CX. Until next time, I'm Stacey Sherman, Doing CX Right.